Now, this chapter is focused upon God as the agent who causes the troubles that Israel suffers. God controls everything. He brings all of our suffering into our lives. And so, we must consider the reality that God brings curses as discipline, and He brings wrath against the wicked. So the Lord, we're told in chapter 2, verse 1, has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger. That there's this hiding of the light, and there is this terror in the presence of it. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. So this beauty, this will get brought up again, the nations will mock. There is a beauty to the church. and There is a beauty to Jerusalem. And that beauty is a beauty that when cast down is mocked by the enemies of God. And God grants that beauty. He grants the beauty of holiness. And the footstool, we're told the, the, you know, heaven is the throne of God and the earth is his footstool. But in particular, the temple, Mount Zion, Jerusalem is his footstool. The mercy seat, right, the ark itself is his footstool. So he does not remember his footstool. He does not remember his temple. He doesn't remember his people, the visible people, in the day of his anger. Of course he remembers them, in a literal sense. What he's doing is he is giving to them suffering for the sake of bringing about a repentance. And when we read Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah and Haggai and Malachi and Zechariah, and we read about the days of small beginnings, and we read about the rebuilding from there, all of that work, all of that building in that time follows after this period of destruction and mourning. And the generation that is first involved in that building saw the old Jerusalem. They saw the old temple. They lived through that. And the new things that were being built and the smallness of it was something that when they first saw it, the response was to weep. Because they know the glories, the beauties that had been cast down. And so in that first beginning to build, they weep. In verse 2, The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. So the homes, right? Your home, where do you, where do you go to be left alone? Where do you go to feel safe? Where do you go to feel comfortable and to try to be in a place where you can kind of go, you know, I'm just going to be at peace here. You go home. And what is being said here is that the enemies of the church destroyed their homes. So where would you flee? What, what would you go to in the event that your home was unsafe? You might flee to a fortified city. You might flee to the strong place. You might, you know, call me, for example, and be like, hey, do you happen to have like a safe room at Armored Republic or something like that? You, 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 all the places that you'd go where who are the people that you know that own guns or have safes or do whatever, these are the people you call. Well, those who fall in too. Okay, well, what about the, the great men? What about the men who would seek to organize? What about the preachers that you might think these men can organize people or, or the, the politicians that are godly or the men who have some sort of resources and wealth? Any of them. What about any of them? 
they have all been taken away. All of the things of strength of nature, home, fortress, and prince, these are the things the Lord took from the people of Israel, from the people of Judah, from Jerusalem. Verse 3, He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. So that's sort of taking the stuff that was listed above, right? A horn is a symbol for power. He's taken away all of the power that Israel has. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemies. He's, he's, he's no longer blocking them. Come on in. He has removed that. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Okay, so there's a theme through Scripture about God being holy, being a consuming fire. And this fire, this wrath, this anger, this holiness and zeal of God now, is directed against Jacob, against the visible church. And that is the reality that Jeremiah is expressing, that they are experiencing, that they have experienced. Verse 4, Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow, his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion... He has poured out his fury like fire. You know, you know, imagine for a minute you're in a tent. And somebody pulls it, pours out on it some sort of flammable liquid that's already on fire. That, that's the image that's being called to mind there. That the wrath of God is like being a person in a tent. And he pours out liquid fire onto it while you're in it. And the horror of these images... Verse 4. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased Mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle, as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. This language of he has done violence to his tabernacle like it's a garden. It's a surprising language. I mean, like, you know, I don't, I don't enter a garden and just, like, hack away at it with a sword. Is that what you do? I mean, you ride in there with a chariot and, like, flaming arrows? What's the violence that's done in a garden? You take the most beautiful things, the fruit, and you consume it. And so the idea here is that just like he's a fire that is consuming Jacob, he's like somebody coming in and just eating the fruit of a garden, just consuming it. And so all of those that are pleasant to his eye, the best of them, the flower of them, are consumed. I mean, think, think about this kind of a scenario, right? When, when you have a collapse, like when you have Jerusalem being destroyed, the valiant ones, the righteous ones, the ones that try to stand in the gap, the ones that try to save other people, right? if God has given you over to be defeated, 
what's going to happen to those men that seek to rally in the street to save your neighborhood? They're not going to stand. They are overcome. And so it's like the most excellent are the ones that are consumed is what's being said. This reminds us of the extraordinary importance of seeking to see repentance and a turning of institutions before the wrath of God is poured out on a society. This is meant to be a motive to us. This is meant to tell us these are the things that befall a nation that rejects the Lord. I repeat to you, there are many encouraging things in Scripture and there are many positive rewards to motivate us, but there are also horrors to behold. And the fear of the Lord is taking those curses seriously and seeking to avoid them. Verse 8, The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. And the ineffectiveness of the defensive devices. This is a part of what God brings in his providence. Verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. Right? Where should a king and a prince be? They should be amongst their own nation, ruling there in the midst of them. Right? So why are the king and the prince among the nations? Because they've been taken as slaves. One of them had his eyes gouged out. This is the kind of thing. This is the level of curse that has befallen. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. The preaching of the law ceases. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Well, one of the curses that God brings is there's no good preaching, there's no light given. Verse 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. Now what's fitting to young women? What's fitting to young women is for them to rejoice, to be lively, and for them to be getting married and celebrating. Silent on the ground with dirt on the head and sackcloth and ashes. One of the things that I want to encourage you about going back to that, verse 9, the preaching of the law and the giving of the prophetic vision out of the word of God are blessings. And in fact, they are the things that bring reformation. They are the things that result in the removal of curse, the bringing of blessing, the restoring of strength, the giving of vigor. And so the removal of these curses is a thing that the power of the word can do. Verse 11, my eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground. Right? This idea of, of tearing, of, of the inward turmoil, the being so anxious that you throw up because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. Okay? When we depersonalize this, I mean, this still sounds pretty awful, but Jeremiah was a member of some local synagogue. Jeremiah knew some particular children and particular mothers, and he saw people he cared about undergo this curse. The horrors of these kinds of curses are difficult to imagine. 
and they are real in history. They happen in history. We are, we are so prone to think that everything is stable and that, yeah, things get worse, but, you know, they can't get that much worse or whatever. I'm post-millennial. We win. General rising of the tide, all of that. But awful things can happen. And preparation and seeking to see repentance and the preaching of the word and the application of the law into your life and the seeking to see order and strength built. These are things we're called to do. Failure to obey God. Failure to put your strength to the work. Failure to seek to build when there is peace results in seeing even what has been built being torn down. Twelve. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother, mother's bosom. Right? That's, this, one's a, this is a hard one. I don't think any of us have had the experience of having our children want food and not being able to give it to them. Imagine you're working as hard as you can to try to figure it out, and your kids are really hungry, and you can't get them the food. Imagine that goes on to the point where you see them swooning in the streets, and that even goes on to the point where their life gives out while their mothers hold them. That's the horror of curse when you don't have the prospering that the Lord gives. When there's a removal of blessing from the land, when there is famine, when there's warfare, when there's destruction. All the blessings of God come from His grace to His people. Verse 13, How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. Okay, so look at this. Verse 13 is saying, what can I say to console you? And verse 14 tells us, these are the things that prophets must say before the curse befalls. What must they do? They must say things that uncover your sins. A prophet is called to bring the law to you and to call you to repent. A prophet is called to come to you and show you your own iniquity. A prophet is called to do that so that you might be brought back out of captivity. When a person brings a rebuke to you out of the law of God, what they are doing is they're saying, brother, I see that you have chains around your neck. I would like to break them off. A rebuke is an effort to bring you out of that curse and to bring you out of oppression. And prophets must be willing to do it. Preachers must be willing to do it. <coughs> False and deceptive visions say every sin is good. Every desire of your heart is righteous. Chase after the heart's desire that you have. You be you. You do you. Do what you will. And a prophet that wants to save you from slavery tells you, the Lord has spoken. And this is what he said. And this is what you're called to do. This is the way of liberty 
And this is the way of blessedness, and it takes you from curse. The delusions of false prophets put us into slavery. They are the ones that bring curse, and they are to be opposed. False doctrine is not a light thing. False doctrine is the thing that makes Jerusalem fall. Verse 15, All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? The mockery that comes on the church comes because its beauty of holiness turns into a whorishness. It comes because its wisdom turns to foolishness. It comes upon it because its joy in the Lord is replaced with joy in something else, which turns quickly not to joy but sorrow. The maintenance of the church with its right doctrine, worship, and government preserves its distinctiveness and avoids it from falling into this curse. Verse 16. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. Right? They're rejoicing in it. Right? Look at the culture more broadly that we see. The degree to which people rejoice over seeing those that were innocent made not innocent. The way that they love to take children and expose them to things they ought not to be exposed to. The way that the public schools are now these places where you expose young children to all sorts of filth and nonsense. The degree to which there is a celebration at the removal of people from the church. As people abandon Christianity and they mock Christianity and the church together, we see some of this wickedness there. The gathering of our enemies that increases in this land is an example of this. But the hardness of it can reach a point where they literally kill you and they literally kill your children. And that is what gets sung about in the destruction of Jerusalem. And we'll see that in Psalm 137. Verse 17, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the strength of your adversaries. We find over and over again in the Psalms and the Proverbs all these things about the way in which God exalts the righteous. And when there is rebellion against God, he causes the wicked to be exalted and to bring judgment on them. Verse 18. Their heart cries out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. This idea of an ongoing lament. This is the response of the curse. It is much easier to repent before curse falls than it is to recover out of the mourning after the curse falls. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward Him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Now, we are not seeing our young children literally starving right now, but we do realize that what we do in our lives will leave a heritage behind. What if... What if the greatest generation, as they're called, and the boomers, as they're called, what if they had done the work of seeing America become a more Christian nation? Would we be in a better place? 
if they had seen strong, reformed churches put into place, if they had worked to build communities rather than disappearing into their isolated existence. We can leave behind for our children a starvation of blessings, or we can give to them a great harvest of it. And we can see them faint from hunger at the lack of blessing as they seek to deal with all the work, or we can take up the work and seek to give them a better condition. Verse 20, See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? So the killing of the holy in the place of the Lord, or the killing of the innocent by their own mothers to eat them. These are horrifying thoughts. And these are talked about in the prophets with the destruction of Jerusalem as it comes upon that these are the types of things that would occur. And Jeremiah is this prophet that is forced to deal with these horrifying themes. And this is the extent of the level of the kinds of evil that can occur if we do not see evilness put away, if we do not see falsehood overcome. We can see horrifying warfare. We can see literal physical famine and the death of children in the presence of their parents and even at the hands of their parents. And when we think about it, it's not all that rare even in our own land now. What is abortion but a genocide of children by the hands of their own parents hiring assassins? Twenty-one. Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. Notice, over and over again, this is attributed to God, that this was his plan, that he's the one doing it. God is not afraid to reveal in his word that he is the ultimate cause of all things. Every hardship comes from his hand. The most horrifying of crimes are things that he has predestined. He does it for his glory. He does it because he's going to bring justice on the perpetrators. He does it because for some they will be saved and he will show his grace. And he does it because we have no right to something better. We deserve hell. We deserve to see that tent with the liquid fire on it be our perpetual existence. And we sometimes forget that or act as though we are owed something, as though we are better than that, as though we do not simply deserve hellfire. But brethren, every mercy you have ever received is exactly that. It's a mercy. It's a mercy. Twenty-two. You have invited, as to a feast day, the terrors that surround me in the day of the Lord's anger. There was no refuge or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. At this idea that there is a, the children that have been had and the children that have been raised have been destroyed by enemies. You know, there's no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth And there is no greater grief than to see them walk in darkness and to be destroyed by the enemy. 
these verses are verses of curse. And they are verses that reveal to us horrors. And they are meant to awaken us to realize that there are dark things in reality that if we do not seek to repent, do not seek to redeem the time, do not seek to use things well, that there are dark things that can come upon us that we have not seen. That there is a general tendency to believe in stability, but it is possible for very difficult things to come suddenly. It is your duty to prepare. It is your duty to seek to repent of sins in your own life. And it is your duty to seek to call others to repentance. And that is our work together as a church. That is what we are called to. So this text reminds us of that. Now, at the same time, let me remind you of also this. We are promised that we are going to be given victory. We are promised that we will see these curses overcome. We are promised that we will see the word advance. And we are promised that we will see the nations brought in and blessing brought upon the earth. So brethren, let's work hard to that end, realizing that that is something that the Lord is with us to do, has commanded us to do, and can empower us to do. And he will empower us to do it if we seek to do it in faith. And so we see days of small beginning like we're going to read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. And some of the days of small beginning are seeing little ones that are so weak and so unable to do anything useful. And what we see is we see clean water used as a symbol to place upon them with the name of the Trinity, the covenant mark of God. And we ask the Lord to bless our work of nurture and to bless our work as we seek to disciple them. And so these kinds of works done heartily, these kinds of works done in faith, these kinds of works done according to the law of God are powerful to overcome the curses that we would see that we've read about in Lamentations. And so my call to you is as we think upon the baptism that is soon to follow here, that what you do is you think about the reality of the covenant promises that we are about to extend as a church through me representing you and that the parents are about to give as well. And we realize that we are calling for the intensification of blessing and the removal of curse by seeking to fulfill those promises. This is a serious thing. Life or death serious. Like we just read about in Lamentations. Are there any comments, questions, or objections from the voting members or those with speaking rights?